0: taken from Luke chapter 1. Luke is the third book in the New Testament right before John. Luke chapter 1, we will read verses 5 to 25. As is our custom, when I am done, I will say this is the word of the Lord and you will say thanks be to God. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive and they were both very old. Once. When Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by Lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, He was startled and grippled with fear but the angel said to him do not be afraid Zechariah your prayer has been heard your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you are to call him John he will be a joy and a delight to you and many will rejoice because of his birth for he will be great in the sight of the Lord he is never to take wine or any other fermented drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not be able to speak until the day this happens because you did not believe my words which will come true at the appointed time. Meanwhile, The people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When the time of his service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. This is the word of the Lord
1: Good morning everyone um, Let me start by saying that it is three weeks to Christmas. And you know, there's something, there's something about the anticipation to Christmas, almost as though you don't really want Christmas to come, right? There's, because you know that as soon as Christmas comes, what happens? It goes, and then we're back to, then we just have to wait. It's almost as if we're, we're waiting for the next next one, which is New Year. And then as soon as New Year comes, we're back to you know, the, the rest of the year. You're waiting for perhaps another Christmas. Oh maybe Easter but but you see that's the thing there's something special about Christmas that is different from Easter it's not it doesn't Easter doesn't carry the same anticipation that Christmas does I think you know there's people are already pulling out their Christmas CDs you know lights are already you know going about everywhere as you're going around Lagos you already know that something is happening you know and you're, you you're, you're, you are you are led to also anticipate this coming of Christmas and I, I like it you know Christmas is my favorite time of the year I mean it goes without saying we had a rich Growing up, we had a rich Christmas culture in our house. We had periods where we would, days where we would not just once or twice, but we would sing Christmas carols together as a family. One of the things I really enjoyed the most. But traditionally, the church actually has what it does to kind of recognize the build up to Christmas, and we call that Advent. And so for the next three weeks, uh, City Church will be taking our Advent series. And this is the first sermon in that series. Um, but here's the thing about Christmas. Let me say something. Growing up as children, and I'm sure that's quite common now, even, even as adults, there are many stories, isolated stories about Christmas that if you were running a, a miniseries, if you're running a you know some uh, blockbuster miniseries like we currently have now, you can run each one of those singular stories as an episode, right? So we have, you know, the story of the of the wise men, you know, three kings of Orient, as the Christmas Carol calls it. Um, then you have the story of the shepherds, right? Beautiful story. They were tending their flock by night, you know, and then they got, you know, the visitation from an angel. Very nice story. It has, it has its beginning. It has, its, you know, its crescendo and then comes to an end. Then you have um, the story of the birth of Jesus. You know, that's also a very nice story as well. You know, he was born in a manger. You know, the, the crisis they had to go through in trying to find a room until, you know, he was born. And then you have the story that was read today as well. It's also one of the many stories, or one of the singular stories that you could read in isolation and see some sort of, oh, this was what was happening. This was the challenge. This was the result. And everybody sort of lived happily ever after. But I dare say that if we do not pay attention to some of the little things that Luke puts in his gospel as he tells this story of Zachariah and Elizabeth, we might miss out some key things that would help us get get ready for Christmas or prepare our hearts to actually anticipate the coming of Jesus Christ. So I've titled this message, Response to a Faithful Promise. Now, it might not be apparent at the moment, but I promise you, you will see the reason why it's titled that as we go along. But I'm going to try and look at this um, in three, under three headings, right? I was constrained to try and, you know, bring it to three headings. In fact, I will tell you what the three headings are and I will tell you what I was trying to do as well. So we're going to look at it in these three headings, overview or background, a response to God's promise, and God's promise fulfilled. Overview or background is really, really a background to Luke's chap- Luke chapters 1 and 2. Uh, I'll, I'll talk about a response to God's promise, and then we'll conclude with God's promise fulfilled. Now, in both the Gospel of Luke and in the book, the Acts of the Apostles, Luke appears to be writing to a man he refers to as most excellent Theophilus. Now, if you do a little bit of research, you will find out that this man was most likely a rich Roman official who probably did not find it easy to believe that a poor Jewish teacher who was executed as a criminal was and is, in fact, the son of God. So this is what Luke writes at the beginning of his Gospel, It also seemed good to me to write to you in an orderly sequence, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed. Luke chapter 1 from verse 3 to 4. So Luke is saying that I want to write to you for a purpose, and that purpose is that you may know the certainty of the things about which you've been instructed, but there is a way in which I'm going to write to you, and it is going to be in an orderly sequence. So you will notice something in what we've read, and if you carry on looking at the other chapters in the book of Luke, specifically Luke chapters 1 and 2, Luke is the only gospel writer who recounts the foretelling of the birth of John the Baptist. So what you see is a little bit of a pattern, and go with me here. He begins in in verse five, Luke 1, verse 5, with the announcement of John's birth to Zechariah. Then in verse 26, the announcement of Jesus' birth to Mary, his mother, Then in verse 39, you see a connection between the two when Elizabeth visits Mary. And then when you get to 57, we have the birth of John. And that is followed immediately in chapter 2, verse 1, by the birth of Jesus. So we have the announcement of John's birth, the birth of John, the announcement of Jesus' birth, the birth of Jesus, and a connection between the two, which is when Elizabeth goes to visit Mary. There is a reason for this pattern, and I, and I want to just bring that out to you in a bit of a, as a bit of an introduction. So it is clear that what Luke wants his audience, in this case, Theophilus, and by extension, us, what he wants him to do or pay attention to in this pattern is that he perhaps wants him to do some sort of comparisons between the person of John and the person of Jesus Christ. For example, there are very obvious comparisons that we can see, very obvious similarities both children are announced by the advance of an angel, the angel Gabriel, so the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah and the angel Gabriel appears to Mary. Both births are considered unnatural or miraculous, so in the one hand you have the birth of John, which was to a woman who was aged, and you have the virgin birth of Jesus Christ to with, with Mary and both of these two, and both of these two are The angel actually tells the people what they should name the child. So there are clear similarities between the two, and we can also identify some other similarities as well. But I think what is even more important than the similarities are the contrasts. So John was born, like I said, to an aged sterile woman, and Jesus was born to a virgin. John was given a name which means God is gracious, and Jesus was given a name which means savior. John was to prepare a way for the Lord, and Jesus is the Lord who would reign forever. Imagine somebody reading through this and understanding or being able to identify these contrasts in, this two, in these two things. It is clear that the picture that wants to be projected here is the person of Jesus, but that Luke actually does this in an orderly manner, as he says, so that his audience will know the certainty of the things about which they've been instructed but let me see if I can point out two clear reasons or two clear truths that this pattern actually reflects to us. One important one is this. God is uniquely at work in the birth of these two men. This is very important. God is uniquely at work in the birth of these two men. This is not something that just happens by chance. This is not something that just happens and then we find that somebody is trying to explain something as a result of something that has just happened. No, no. What happens is that God predicts the birth of these two people and then he causes it to happen. He is uniquely at work in the birth of these two people and it is important for Luke's audience to actually recognize this. And Luke shows this in two ways. First of all, he describes how God predicts what will happen first. In verse 13, for instance, he says, your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son. And in verse 24, he says, after these days, his wife, Elizabeth, conceived. So you see that Luke is actually very particular about showing how the angel makes a prediction and that that prediction actually came to pass. Now, the only thing that makes that kind of authoritative prediction possible is the sovereignty of God. The other way that Luke is able to express this is in God's preeminence and control in these miraculous births that we see. They are not just predicted births, they are Impossible births. Verse seven, for instance, says that they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and with the both of them, Elizabeth and Zachariah, were both advanced in years. If in fact there was a, there's a, there's a part where Elizabeth goes to to visit Mary, and sorry, when the angel appears to Mary, and the angel says to Mary, "Behold, your kinswoman Elizabeth is in her old age, has conceived a son." Basically expressly stating what is supposed to be impossible. In the case of Mary, it's the same thing. It's a virgin birth. So in the first instance, God is uniquely at work in the birth of this two. But the second truth that this pattern teaches us is that Jesus is far greater than John the Baptist. Jesus is far greater than John the Baptist. When the Gabriel appears, when the, when Angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah, he does tell him that the, his son, John, is going to be great. He'll be great in the eyes of the Lord. He will, but when he appears to Mary, what he's, telling him, what he's telling Mary there, that Jesus Christ will be great, but he will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him to the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. You know what? It is my understanding that at that time, we, there was a lot of anticipation of the Messiah. So you, you had basic essentially 400 years of silence where God had not spoken to the people of Israel. And there was this anticipation of, because of clearly the way the Romans were oppressing the Israelites, there was always this anticipation of, when will God hear our prayer? When will God hear us and come and save us from all of this? In fact, everybody was so anticipating the Messiah that you had very many women who already thought or dreamt of themselves as giving birth to that Messiah. Of course, they understood the Messiah concept to be somebody who will liberate them as a nation out of Israel. So you can see how not only is barrenness or childlessness a struggle, but that anticipation of being the one that would actually give birth, or the one that would, as a woman, the one that would actually give birth to the Messiah, and realizing that you've lost your chance, that was something that um, Elizabeth actually went through. But in this case, all hope was not lost as the angel came and gave this message. Now, why am I going through this sort of background? And there's a reason for it. In going through this passage, one of the things that was remarkably um, clear to me is the fact that it dawned on me that God, who is always faithful, uses means that are not always obvious to you and I. He uses means to bring about his purpose that we do not necessarily consider to be you know, wow. He uses ordinary people in the midst of their normal lives to bring about things that are great. In in this case, God, who made a promise to his people Israel, is bringing about the fulfillment of that promise. But he's doing it in the midst of this ordinary couple, Zechariah and Elizabeth. He's doing it in the sense that he wants to bring about the Messiah, but he sends this forerunner first, who, the Bible tells us, is the greatest man that ever lived, at least up until his time, And he does that in the ordinariness of the lives around us. He does that with ordinary people, people that if you and I were perhaps in that society, we would not necessarily consider them that much. And I think it's a remarkable point for us to note. You will see how that plays in some of the other points I'll bring out later. So that's my first point. It's a little bit of a background that I want us to pay attention to as we go into the the reading of the passage proper. All right, so number two, a response to God's promise. A response to God's promise. Now, I I want us to do to just run down through what Femi read for us this morning, and we're going to do that together. So, the gospel or Luke begins his gospel with these words: "In the days of King Herod of Judea." Now, it is one of those things that we read and we kind of gloss over, but it packs a lot of meaning. It, It has a lot of reference to something. It is almost as though we say something like, "In." Let me give an example. In 1999, for instance, or should I say, in, if, I, if, I, if I call up a date, if I say, what does June 12 signify to you? The almost obvious things I will remember is the crisis that happened here during elections, isn't it? Right? So I don't have to tell you about the crisis. I don't have to say, this is what happened. All I have to say is what? June 12. And as soon as I say June 12, you are by yourself because you were here, you just remember the whole thing, isn't it? And that is exactly what Luke is actually doing here. By me- by giving the context of when this thing actually occurs, he does that by saying in the days of King Herod of Judea. Now, King Herod was known for two things, right? He was known for one of the people that pioneered some of the greatest architectural feats that you will find in the city of Jerusalem. So the, te- the rebuilding of the temple, you know, in the way it looked and everything, King Herod was perhaps partly responsible for it. There are lots of other things that he did. That was one thing he was known for. The second thing he was known for is that he was perhaps known known as perhaps one of the most terrible people that ever lived in that time. It is this same King Herod that was responsible for coming up with a plan. Okay, I'm looking for a child. I cannot find him. So you know what? Let's kill every child that is two years and under. So clearly, if a nation is being ruled by this sort of person it is evident that all the people under him will be under some level of oppression especially if they are not romans because he was roman so it's understanding this concept or sorry understanding this context of the israelites who have not heard from god for 400 years being in this oppressive state whereby they are constantly being oppressed by the rule of the romans of which there are people there that still anticipate that God will still deliver them from this. It is in this day, or in the days of King Herod of Judea, that there was a priest of Abijah's division named Zechariah. Up until this point, this is still an ordinary story. The priest is a man named Zechariah, but he's of a particular division, Abijah's division. If you read through 1 Chronicles, I think it's chapter 22, 23, I think 24, you will see all the roughly about 24 divisions that the lineage or the priesthood of Aaron actually is divided into. Now, up until, uh, at this point in time, the, the, the priesthood of Aaron has already multiplied greatly to the point that by the time you took numbers of all the divisions of all the priests, they were probably numbering about 20,000. And so you have this one man, Zechariah, who was one of the thousand priests that served the nation of Israel in the priestly duties, um, in terms of, serving, in terms of um, their, their worship to God. Now, not just is this man you know, from the lineage of the priesthood of Aaron. His wife is also from the lineage of the priesthood of Aaron. His wife was from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Still a very ordinary story at this point. There is nothing happening. This is one ordinary priest married to a very lovely woman. You know, also a, also from, the, from the lineage of Aaron as well. And then Luke gives us a very important information here, which plays itself in the, in the telling of the story. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame, according to all the commands and requirements of the Lord. Both were righteous in God's sight, living without blame. So there was something that God saw in these people that made him to label them as righteous, or that made them righteous before his sight. Clearly, one of the things we can identify is that in terms of keeping all the commands of God, in terms of keeping all the... So there was, a, there was a lot of piety involved here. So they were very faithful in keeping God's commands. And then you come to verse 7. But they had no children because Elizabeth could not conceive, and both of them were well along in years. So now the plot changes a little bit. We're no longer just having some sort of an ordinary family. There was a problem. At least in their own eyes, they saw themselves as having a problem. Elizabeth could not conceive, and they didn't have a child. When his division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, it happened that he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord and born sense. Let me tell you something about this. So, Because of the number of priests that were serving at the time, a particular division would come up. And in that particular division, there were very many people. There were very many priests in that order. And so they would cast lots, basically, cast lots to actually pick somebody that would actually go into the holy place to burn incense. Because of the sheer number of people that were in any particular division, it was very likely that this was going to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. It was going to be a -a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And that was when Zechariah was called up to actually... Do. So, of course, this is something he has probably never done before. And he, took it with, you know, he basically took up this um, duty with all reverence and was ready to perform it to the best of his ability. And it was under all of these things, in terms of performing his duty, that the angel Gabriel appeared to him in the holy place. Now, all of the background of this is very important for us to understand the way in which God chose to speak after being silent for 400 years. The ordinariness of it all, especially when you consider the way in which he spoke in the Old Testament. It is in this context that the angel Gabriel appears to Zechariah in the holy place, and then he tells him something important. He tells him two things, actually. He tells him that his prayer has been heard. And that's what we see in verse 11 and 12. An angel of the Lord appeared to him standing to the right of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified and overcome with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah, because your prayer has been heard. Now, that reaction of being gripped with fear and being afraid is a very common reaction. I don't know if you all can hear me. I know I'm messing up. I always mess up this mic mic stuff, so I'm, I'm being very careful today. Can you all hear me? All right. So um, that reaction that you see him there is a common reaction that people always have anytime an angel uh, appears to them. In fact, one very common story, like I said before, is the story of the angels that the angel also appeared to. And, you know, we have while shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground, the angel of the Lord came down and what? and glory shone around. Fear not, said he, for mighty dread had seized their troubled minds. You guys are looking for spoken word people, are you? (laughs) But that's a common reaction, right? The fact that you see, I want to believe that seeing an angel of the Lord is perhaps something that is very glorious to behold. And so seeing that thing would obviously bring about fear in them. And Zechariah had a normal reaction. He was afraid. And the response that the angel gave to him was the same response that the angel gave to the shepherds. And he says, Fear not. But he says, Fear not, your prayers, your prayer has been heard. What prayer do you think he was talking about there? What prayer do you think, you know, we we hadn't been told, at least up until this point, that Zechariah was praying for anything in particular? The obvious assumption I think that we would make is that Zechariah was probably praying for a son. But perhaps that might not have been the case. Because clearly his response does not indicate that he was receiving a response to his prayer. So what other prayer was he praying? I dare say that he was performing his priestly duties in offering prayers to God for the people of Israel. The Bible tells us there that the people gathered outside. So they normal, the normal thing is that when the priest goes into the holy place to actually offer incense or do any other things in terms of his priestly duties the people of Israel will gather in the outer court. And they are basically gathering because they are offering their worship to God. They are actually praying. Now, given the context and given the situation that they they found themselves in, one of the things we can assume that they were praying for was clearly the liberation that God had promised them. And when Angel Gabriel comes and says, your prayer has been answered, I want to believe that what he was talking about is that God is ready to move. God is ready to respond to the promise that he had made to the people of Israel. And he was going to to begin to do that by giving another promise. And he promises Zechariah there and then that your wife Elizabeth would have a son. And he promises Zechariah there and then that your wife Elizabeth would have a son. And that that son will be greater than any man before him. Now, Zechariah may or may not have remembered that Abraham and Sarah went through a similar experience. I want to think that he probably did, being the the priest. He may or may not have remembered that the words of the angel were very similar to the promise that God made or God gave in the book of Malachi, chapter 4 from verse 5 to 6. See, I will send you the prophet Elijah before that great and dreadful day of the Lord he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers. This is exactly the words that the angel Gabriel used when he, when he came and made that promise to Zechariah. But here is where the plot twists a little bit, the part of the plot that we don't like. Zechariah's response is this. How shall I know this? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And then the angel responds to him. And essentially, the, angel, the response of the angel is quite brief and it's quite cut. It's basically saying to him, I am standing before you as an authority of God. I have brought the word of God to you, but you have, ref- you have refused to believe. And as a result of that, you will be unable to speak. So, in the past, I've been asked this question. And again, I want to do a little bit of a comparison. I have been asked the question about comparing the angel's visit to. Zechariah, and the angel's visit to Mary. So Mary doubted too. Now, why why was it only Zechariah that was punished? Well, there are a couple of ways that we can answer that. Number one is very clear. The angel tells us, or the angel told him, that he did not believe. So we can tell clearly that this is the angel of the Lord saying this. He did not believe, right? The angel doesn't say that about Mary. That's one very quick answer. In fact, yes, the angel actually said that she believed. But here's the thing. Zechariah was probably in a spot where he should have remembered what happened to Abraham and Sarah. In fact, Paul tells us of of Abraham that he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead because he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb, no distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in faith giving glory to God. That was Abraham and Sarah's response. Now, but if you look at the responses of both Zechariah and Mary, you can also tell, you can also give an answer on that. So in the one hand, Zechariah's response was, how can I know this? And he offers what? He offers constraints to the thing that has been told to him. He starts to say, I am old, and my wife is what? Far advanced in years. He offers constraints. Mary's response is not that. Mary's response is, how is this thing going to work out? How is this thing going to play itself? She basically wanted a road map. Zechariah asks for more evidence. Mary asks for an explanation. Zechariah says he can't be sure. He wants more evidence. Mary says she can't understand. Zechariah sees the angel of the Lord before him, hears the promise that the angel of the Lord has made to him, and offers constraints to the actualization of that promise. Mary asks for the workings of the promise. Mary receives at least a partial explanation, but Zachariah receives a rebuke and is made dumb by the angel. I always used to think to myself, he asked for a sign. When he was made dumb, did he consider that to be a sign? I think he would have. I mean, what better sign than to make him dumb? In fact, I believe that as soon as he was walking out, he knew he was going to have the son because he couldn't speak. But let me say something about we, Zechariah and Mary. Before we are quick to dismiss Zachariah's reaction, let's reflect for a moment on their situation and what kind of led him to have that kind of hard stance on their particular situation. So one thing we can understand in our own society is the societal stigma of barrenness or childlessness. It's something that we can understand here, and it was, it's similar to the way it was in their own time as well. For much of the same reasons, first, first and foremost, the pain of not being, of not having children, just the sheer pain of, of, anticipating one year, five years, ten years, on and on and on of having, of wanting children and not just getting it. Second, Zachariah and Elizabeth also suffered shame. In fact, if you read towards the end of what, uh, if you go towards the end of what Femi read was this morning, she said that. The Lord has done good for me in these days when he looked upon me to take away my disgrace from among the people. By disgrace, what she meant was the shame that comes from non-barrenness, when people know that you're, that you're childless. And in our own society, we have the same kinds of elements as well. If you're nearing your 40s in this Nigeria, and, you don't, and you're not married, for instance, or you don't have any children, You start to receive questions like, heartless questions like, when are you going to get yourself a husband? When are we going to see some little ones running around? That is what the society that we live in, that is the similar society that they were in. You start to hear whispers. It's almost as if you go for any baby shower, there's somebody there that is trying to make you think about the fact that you don't have kids or the fact that you're not married or something like that. The other thing is that Zechariah and Elizabeth also dealt with questions about whether they did something wrong to deserve the barrenness. You know, that is actually something that is a bit absurd. People think that if you are not, we think it's a blessing, blessed with whatever you want to call it, whether it's marriage or whether it's children, then that means there's something that you must have done wrong that is actually causing that. And Zechariah was a religious leader. So you can imagine how that would have undermined his authority. Now, this is the situation that Zachariah found himself. And a conditioning of all of that can lead anyone to take that thing that is so much desire and make it an idol. Can take that desire to want to have children, especially considering the context in which he was living, and then just be hung up on that so much that he's able to hear the promise of God and not believe it. Now, before we are quick, like I said before, before we are quick to pass judgment on Zechariah, we ought to look at ourselves as well. Do we hold on to these societal norms or do we hold on to these societal beliefs at the expense of really believing what God has promised us? So there are two things in our own society that I can point to. One of them is not prevalent in Nigeria. It's more prevalent in the Western world. But the second one is perhaps most prevalent here. One is that there is an increasing thing about these two views are about family and just, let, me, let me just talk a little bit about that. There is this increasing notion that you know, people are beginning to desire being autonomous or being single or being on their own more now. So the, the aspect of the things that God gives us, the things like marriage and children that God gives us to actually as blessings to us, people, some people are beginning to see those things as burdens. You know, let me enjoy my life now. Let me I don't want to do all these things now. Let me just enjoy my life as, as much as I did. That's not prevalent here. That is, a society, that is a, something that is happening in, in Western societies and is gradually creeping into our society here in Nigeria. But the one that is perhaps more prevalent here is where people hold family to such high regard that it becomes an idol. And we don't want to even think through our thoughts on that, on that particular matter. If somebody is not married, it's as though something is, something is gravely wrong. If people don't have children, we can be... In this country, we can be quite heartless about it. We have a series on marriage and singleness, so I'm not going to focus on that, but let me say something about childlessness for a moment. Chances are that here, whether you're married or not, whether you have children or not, that you perhaps know at least one person who is probably struggling with infertility issues. Let's face it, it's a bit of an awkward topic for everyone. Myself and Ikechi, we have family members that have actually suffered through this for a while. And to be honest, when we meet, frankly, I don't know what to say. I don't know how to respond. I don't know whether to even broach the subject at all. And the kinds of things to actually talk about even when you broach the subject. My wife is a lot better at that. So I'm not expert on the subject. But let me offer some thoughts on at least what not to do. You don't have to tell them that you are praying for them. You don't have to tell them that you're praying for them. Pray for them. Sometimes we can be quite zealous and I, I want to believe that most of the time when people do this, they, act, they actually mean well. But meaning well and actually, actual, and, and actually relating that you're meaning well to the people that you're meaning well to might not necessarily come out the way you think. Do not treat them as though they are completely clueless when it comes to children. Now that's actually something that we do unconsciously. Almost as though they can't give any advice when it comes to children or or their brain shuts off just because they have no children of their own. Do not cut off ties. Try to maintain friendships. And if they are Christian, this is the important one, rejoice in the fact that they are not defined by their ability to have children or not, but rather in the faithful promise of being in the presence of God forever. And share that truth with them. This is what makes us distinctly Christian. This is the thing that makes us not to have the same mentality or the same thinking as the people in the society around us. We ought to be careful not to get up in the common thinking that we have in our society. So, Zechariah gave a response that was perhaps informed by his own thinking or his own dwelling, so much dwelling on this aspect of his childlessness. And he gave that response. And of course, the angel responded to him or responded to his own belief by saying that he will be dumb until the day that his, that, that promise will be fulfilled. This takes me to my final point God's promise fulfilled. God's promise fulfilled. So Zechariah's doubt is sandwiched between two key pieces of information that, the, that Luke gives us. So in verse 6 that Femi read for us this morning, we are told that both Zechariah and Elizabeth were both righteous before God, walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, and they were called blameless. So clearly, the Zechariah that we are told did not believe the promise of God because of obviously his personal circumstances. He believed in God. Despite the silence of 400 years, he continued to believe in God, evidenced by the fact that he continued to perform his priestly duties. So Zechariah was a righteous man. He was a prayerful man. But as we all know and as we can all see, even the best of men fall into unbelief now and then. The key thing here is that we should see when we fall into those small spates of unbelief and we should be quick to repent. So that's the first part of the sandwich. The second part of the sandwich is that as soon as John the Baptist is born, and this is much later in verse 64, the Bible says that as soon as Zechariah obeyed and named him what the angel told him to name his son John, his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke. Let me read to you what he spoke. This is somebody who did not believe he was going to have a son, and nine months later, so only a nine-month, almost like a nine-month gap in between, let me read to you what he said. This is commonly known as Zechariah's song. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished his redemption for his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of David his servant, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to perform the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Through the tender mercies of our God, by which the day shall dawn upon us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness, and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. This is Zechariah's song, After His Son Has Been Born. So you have a righteous, prayerful man, you have a moment of doubt and you have quick repentance that makes him even proclaim things that are beyond the thing he has actually seen. Let's take just the first verse. That's verse 64. Sorry, verse verse 68. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. And let me see if I can give us four remarks about that particular verse. First, Nine months earlier, Zachariah could not believe his wife would have a child. Now filled with the Holy Spirit, he is so confident of God's redeeming work in the coming Messiah that he puts it in past tense. Up until that point in time, of course, there is nothing about the birth of Jesus Christ. It is just John that has been born. But he puts this thing that God has promised that he will do, he now puts it in past tense. In fact, this is also a reflection of the fact that this is the thing that the Israelites have been praying for. This is the thing that Zechariah has been praying for, for them to see the redemption of their God. So for him, at this point in time, because he has begun to see the workings of that promise, the workings of that promise is in the birth of this one that the angel Gabriel has told him will be great, that will go before the Messiah, that will prepare the way for the Lord. And he responds by saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He is so confident of God's redeeming work at this point that he decides to put it in past tense. In fact, for him at this point, a promised act of God is as good as done. God has visited and God has redeemed us. Secondly, the coming of Jesus, the Messiah, is a visitation of God to our world. The God of Israel has visited and this is what he says the God of Israel has visited and redeemed. So for centuries the people of Israel languished under the conviction that God had withdrawn. The spirit of prophecy had ceased. Israel had fallen into the hands of Rome, and all the godly in Israel were awaiting the salvation that God would give to them. In fact, Luke tells us in chapter 2 that the devout Simon was looking for the consolation of Israel the prayerful Anna was looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. So these were the days of great expectations. But Zechariah knows now by the sign that has been given to him in the birth of his son that the long-awaited visitation of God was about to happen. Indeed, he was about to come in a way that no one expected. Three, Jesus is coming to redeem. This is what Zechariah says. He has come with redemption. Now, when you think about this word, don't think that in the minds of Zechariah and the, and the Israelites at the time, that they have the same thoughts that you and I have now about redemption. The thoughts that you and I have because we have been, ex- we have been exposed to Paul's writing in the, in the New Testament. In fact, what they were thinking of was something perhaps more national in mind, more situational in mind in terms of redeeming the people of Israel from the oppression that they were currently going through. That is perhaps the redemption that he had in mind. In fact, it was similar to the thing that Moses had in mind when God said that he was going to deliver the Israelites from Egypt. But we know as we look forward to Christmas, we know that as we look forward to the day where we commemorate the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, that that redemption is the redemption of people from their sins. When the Lord appears to Joseph in a dream, he says to him, Do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. She will bear a son, and he will save his people from their sins. As Christmas draws near, it is a day when we mark in remembrance the fulfillment of God's promise. I have a question for you this morning. How do you respond to that promise? How do you respond to a promise that we know, we know for sure has already been fulfilled? This is not Zechariah's case where they were waiting for the the beginnings of that fulfillment of that promise. We know that 2,000 years ago, over 2,000 years ago, Jesus Christ came and accomplished the work that his father sent him to do so that you and I can gather together here in this room and we can worship him we know that the accomplishment of that work means that you and I can look forward to something that is beyond all our troubles in this life. How do we respond to that? How much of our troubles, how much of our difficulties do we get consumed by that we actually forget the promises of God? Are we caught up in the norms of society? Are we caught up in the traditions of society that we do not see ourselves as people that have already been redeemed by Jesus Christ? As we prepare for our Christmas service, I want us to all spend some time reflecting. As Christmas comes, of course, there's lots of things to enjoy, lots of things for us to actually do, lots of laughter, lots of things to actually be happy about. But I really want us to spend some time reflecting on how we respond to what Jesus Christ has done for us. If there are moments of unbelief, if there are moments whereby we waver a little bit, can we quickly repent? and turn ourselves around like Zechariah did. I'd like us to go into a time of prayer now. Think through your own response to the promise that God has made and fulfilled. Think through your own response to the anticipation of the coming of our Savior Jesus Christ. Remember that as we wait for Christmas, as we look forward to Christmas, that there is another promise of the coming of the Messiah, of the coming of Jesus Christ, his second coming, that we ought to look forward to. How do we live our lives in reflection of that? If there is a need for us to repent, now is the opportunity for us to do so if we have not found ourselves rejoicing in the coming of Jesus Christ, now is a time for us to do so. Our Father and our God, we want to thank you for your mercy, for your grace, and for your reminding us of your word. Reminding us that the promise you made to redeem us from our sins, O Lord, has indeed been fulfilled. And as we look towards Christmas, as we look towards the day that we remember the birth of Jesus Christ, we pray, O Lord, that you help us to remember all that he has done for us, all that he has brought about as a result of his death and resurrection, and the hope that we look forward to, which is his second coming, a time when we will dwell with you in your presence forever and ever. We pray, O Lord, that you help us to look to this, to look away from all of our troubles, to look away from all the prejudices that we have, but to look to this as the anchor for our souls. In Jesus' name we pray.
0: Thank you for listening to the Gospel in Lagos. We pray you've been blessed by this message. To learn more about City Church, visit www.citychurchlagos.com City Church, love Jesus, love people, love Lagos.